Today, we're diving into a discussion about imposter syndrome. Regardless if you're a student, new grad, or even seasoned professional, you've probably felt the effects of imposter syndrome at some point in your life. In this episode, we're going to look at what imposter syndrome is, what it feels like, and also discuss some ways that you can kind of push through to not let it keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Welcome to the OT Roundtable, a podcast where we discuss a wide range of topics related to the field of occupational therapy. We are here to shed light on things that are happening within our profession and bring awareness to these topics through raw and honest conversations. So let's meet the Roundtable. I'm Sarah Putt from OT for Life, and in joining in the conversation with me today, I've got Michelle from Incorporate Mindfulness. How's it going, Michelle? Good. I'm excited to be here. And also, Brock Cook from the Occupied Podcast. How are you, Brock? I'm good. I'm good. Pretty keen to have this conversation. I've been looking forward to this one. Mm-hmm. Me too. And our guest panelist today is Alondra Ammon. Oh, did I mess up? That up? Got it. Got it. <laughs> got it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I feel like How I'm are you? I feel like I need a mic. Where's my mic? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing good. I'm excited to be here with you guys and talk about this this topic that's very personal and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to. So I, I'm excited to be here with you guys today. Yep. Awesome. Well, a little bit about you, Alondra. You're an occupational therapist. You're coming, joining us from the Bay Area in California. And currently you work in a really cool, actually one of my favorite practice areas, hippotherapy. And for people that don't know, and you can also jump in and and help me with a little bit, because I've done a little bit of hippotherapy, but I don't know ton about it. Mm -hmm. But basically hippotherapy is incorporating horses into the sessions and utilizing the movement of the horse in your treatment sessions. Correct. Yep. (laughs) And we just do it from, you know, an OT lens and, you know, as far as like how we engage the patients and in their sessions and uh, what we do during the sessions. So we make it very OT based. We just have a dynamic platform. So instead of having them doing an OT session, let's say on a, on a mat or on their bed or in a wheelchair, you know, they're on a horse. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it makes it a little bit more challenging. It's, you know, kind of like putting someone on the, the yoga ball, the sensory, you know, the ball, um, very dynamic. So yeah, just makes it a little bit more challenging and, and interesting, you know, with the horses, it's such a, sensory rich environment, all the smells, we're outside, what you're hearing, seeing. So it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I love it. And yeah, I love that you just said that it's a sensory experience because there's so much that goes into that. So I, I could definitely talk about hippotherapy all day, but let's get, to, <laughs> let's get to the reason why, you brought, why we brought you on today and let's dig into imposter syndrome. So I want to hear from the panel. Let's, let's kick this off. And I want to know who here has experienced imposter syndrome before. Alondra, let's start with you. (laughs) For sure. I mean, you know, it's interesting is that when I was in undergrad and grad school, I didn't really know that what, what I was experiencing. I just knew that I felt 
like I wasn't as smart as everyone. Like maybe I got into the program by luck and they're going to find out that I'm not as smart as they're making me out to be. And everyone in my class was so smart in my cohort. And I'm just like, I don't know if I can keep up with these people, you know? And it wasn't until I went to a conference, the national conference on race and ethnicity. Um, it's called NCOR. Um, that I found out about imposter phenomenon. So originally it was coined as imposter phenomenon by Pauline Rose Clance and Susan Imes in 19, ooh, I have my notes, 78. Um, so it's been around for a while. Um, and they, they defined it as the intellectual experience of, uh, the internal experience of intellectual phoniness. So, um, you know, I've had people ask me, well, what's the difference between imposter syndrome and, you know, being self-conscious or, you know, it's, it's different in the sense that we are talking about your intellectual capacity and your abilities. And when that is being questioned, that's where this comes in versus, you know, I could be self-conscious about my hair or my clothes. It's not the same thing. So. Um, so yeah, I forgot what I was saying after that. That's right. I can definitely relate to that. I'm feeling that right now, actually. It's why uh, you're so smart. <laughs> I know, but no. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Shucks. That's no, the opposite of imposter syndrome. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's my coping mechanism to try and convince myself. Um, oh no, like because I've got like obviously I work in academia put me in front of a class any day, no issue at all. Right now I'm studying as well. And like, even after this, I've got to finish writing an assignment and the, the, just the process of writing that assignment. I'm like, how am I remotely able to teach classes when I find this so difficult or, you know, I struggle with this or that kind of thing. So the, the process of studying for me is, almost counter to my self-esteem as a teacher. <laughs> so it's 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 an interesting balance and I'm glad that I only have a few assignments a semester, so I'm not doing it constantly, which is good. <laughs> yeah, I'm really glad that we're talking about this because um, this is something that a lot of students, I'm sure, experience. Um, and what I was kind of talking about uh, earlier is that, you know, I experienced this in undergrad and grad school, um, but I didn't know what I was experiencing. I thought my, you know, my internal like self-talk was normal. You know, I, it was okay. Like I didn't feel like I was up to speed on the material as everyone else in my class, I felt like everyone was getting A's on exams and I'm here I am getting a B or B minus, uh, sometimes a C or lower. And I'm like, I shouldn't be here, you know? And I didn't know that what I was experiencing had a name until, oh, that's what I was saying, until I went to a conference called NCOR, which stands for the National Conference of Race and Ethnicity. And it was at that conference that I was introduced to this term and it just all like it literally all of a sudden just clicked that everything that I was experiencing, all the self doubt, um, 
the feeling that I, you know, was going to, they were going to find out that I wasn't as smart and they shouldn't have let me in the program. And just like all of that finally had a name and being able to associate what I was internalizing and experiencing to an actual thing. (laughs) Like this wasn't just in my head. This is actually something that people experience, you know, on a regular basis, anytime that they feel that their intellect is being challenged in a way that they might not fit in with the norm or, you know, everyone else is ahead of them or no more or whatever. And so it's really cool to kind of find out about this and present about it in conference. And I'm happy to be talking about it today. So, yeah. And it doesn't stop in academia. <laughs> it doesn't. Because then you think about the students that go to field work or entry level therapists, you know, and then you have, you know, people that have years of experience and here you are starting out and you feel like you should, you're, you should, you're supposed to know everything and you don't and they hired you to do this job and you're like, oh my gosh, they're going to figure out, I don't know what in the world I'm doing. I'm going to get fired. <laughs> um, um, yeah. So it can, it, it can definitely be a challenge, but I think knowing that knowing what you're experiencing is an actual thing and it's not just you, I think it really will help to kind of process that. And, you know, now whenever I feel that way, I'm just like, oh, that's my imposter syndrome mm-hmm. acting up. And then I'm able to kind of release that a little bit. It's still a struggle, but <laughs> yeah. I think it's really like across the board, even like starting a business or starting anything new where you're putting yourself out there. Cause I know when I first started podcasting, I totally felt like an imposter where I was like, who's going to listen to me? What do I really have to contribute here? I felt the same way when I started my own private practice. So it's, it, like I see it a lot with my students, but also it does happen with people that have been practicing for years and continuing to push themselves and kind of move in directions where we are progressing and challenging ourselves. And all of a sudden we're like, Oh, maybe we're not cut out for this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Stepping into new roles for sure. Yeah. 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 I can definitely relate to this also. Um, as I was thinking about it, that, um, I, anytime I've like switched roles at work, even, um, working outpatient pediatrics and then going into acute care pediatrics. And, um, I felt like a fish out of water. I felt like a brand new graduate. And I think I, I put a lot of pressure on myself cause I'm like, Oh, I should know this. Like there's newer therapists here. There are new grads and they're looking to me as an experienced therapist, but it was a totally different area. Um, and so rem- reminding myself that I'm still learning and it's okay um, to, to learn that I don't need to know everything. Um, something interesting that popped into my mind as we were talking though, because um, I can also relate to Sarah, what she's talking about, about um, like starting OT for life and like having that imposter syndrome and starting her private practice and everything. Um and I have definitely been having a lot of those feelings coming up myself um, with just re-entering the podcast world because I started in the podcast world in like 2000 or what was it? 20, we decided 2012, we figured it out. And that was like so different. And then coming back now and with social media, um, sometimes I feel this pressure that I want to post something or talk about a topic I'm interested in, but this fear of 
that um, I don't know it well enough to talk about that or to post about it. And there's probably an OT out there that knows more than me. And I wonder if other students or, I mean, just even therapists feel similarly that we're kind of constantly comparing ourselves to other people, even that we don't know. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, sh I'm sure that's the case for a lot of people, for mm -hmm. sure. I do wonder, so we were talking at the st uh, earlier and Michelle said to me, she's like, well, but you never get imposter syndrome. And I was trying to work out, I was just thinking before about like why that because I've heard that from other people before and I'm like I'm trying to work out why I give that impression sometimes because it's definitely not true um and I wonder whether or not it is at least for me something that shows itself more when I'm trying to do something that I'm not in control of like I was saying before like my study like that's something like I'm not controlling what I have to write it's not my choice I'm just doing what I'm told kind of thing Whereas a lot of the projects like that Michelle would know me from are stuff that I'm completely in control. I do what I want, like the podcast and some of the social media stuff that I'm involved in, etc. Um, but then I was also thinking like of, of Sarah's example of starting a private practice. And I'm like, if I was starting a private practice, I think... I, I can foresee that I would experience it then, even though I am in control of the process and that sort of thing. So. Is there any kind of theory or idea about when it, I guess, manifests more often or is it different for everyone? Or Yeah, it's definitely different for everyone because it, you know, the way you experience something might be completely different from how I would experience it and Sarah and Michelle. So, um, but at the end, end of it, the core of it, it's really just a matter of, when you're feeling that your intellect is kind of being challenged in a way and you don't feel adequate enough or prepared enough or smart enough or, you know, anything in that, in that realm. And so um, different things can bring that up, but it's not uh, uncommon to see it in, in school, of course, you know, you're around so many different peers and there are some, um, I think it's interesting that you, you said that, you know, people, will tell you that they don't really feel like you have that or would experience that. And there are some behavioral patterns that uh, Dr. Clance and Susan Imes, you know, created or came up with after doing their research. And that one of them is that people who experience imposter syndrome tend to be extremely hardworking. And so, you know, <laughs> that's maybe that's why I get told that I don't have it. Just, I'm going to call you out. You just said you're going to work an 18-hour day. I mean, yes. But that's I'm going to call what, you out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I get fair. But that's I don't have a choice. No, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're pretty diligent and you get right. things done. I'm pretty consistent with your podcast. I'm pretty sure you're consistent with your students and teaching and your assignments. Do you not do them? Uh, like, I'm, I'm sure you do. Before the due date, they are done, Yes. There you go. <laughs> well, well, okay, check, check this out. Check this out. Another behavioral pattern that they, you know, found that same seems to be a consistency with people who experience imposter phenomenon is procrastination mm. and fear of fail failure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I do have it. <laughs> In huge well, 
<laughs> they you can take their their scale. I'll give you the link so maybe you could post it in the in the description. But they do have a scale that you you know you can take you can take it and it's not no you know it's not a formal assessment. But you know the higher the number, then there's a good chance that you probably have have impo- it's, uh, symptoms of imposter. So syndrome. on yeah. that, would it? Do you think, or have they said, or do you know of? Is it a matter of, you know, these symptoms, for lack of a better term, show up when you are experiencing it, or are mean you probably are experiencing it? Is it a matter of addressing the symptoms? like addressing the procrastination in order to get rid of it or is it unrelated in, in that regard? Yeah, so, so what they found is that uh, because people, people who experience imposter phenomenon are so worried about being found out that they're always constantly trying to do their best. Mm-hmm. And so that's what makes them hard, hardworking, right? Because they don't want anyone to find out. And it's not even that we're consciously thinking, I have imposter syndrome, I'm a fraud. It's just this panic and fear that sets in and we got to show up and, and show and prove. And so we work hard and try to get as much information and do our research and study our butts off. And so that's kind of where the work hard comes, comes in. But as far as like the procrastination and the fear, sometimes it's almost like self-sabotage in a way, like, you know what, I, I don't know as much about this. I'm just going to kind of wait till the last minute and do it. And you know what? If I get a good grade, well, then amazing. But I'm not expecting a good grade because I'm not good at this, you know. And so kind of tend to put things on the back burner and just wait to the last minute. And, and then have um, to it's pull an 18-hour day to write an assignment. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like you're in my good. head. <laughs> Yeah. When, when I was um, a new grad, there was a saying that everyone used to say, like, fake it till you make it. Does yeah. anybody else say that? Yeah. And is that like, I'm wondering if that was kind of like a coping mechanism that you don't, you're still learning and you, and to be honest, there are times that I still feel like I'm faking it till I make it, that I don't know everything. Is that kind of like a symptom or a, like where you're feeling like you kind of like have to put on this show, but you're feeling insecure with yourself and maybe you know more than you think you do? Or I'm curious what you think about that. Probably a combination because I mean, so for me during grad school and experiencing imposter syndrome, it wasn't like one day I experienced it, next day I didn't, one day I didn't. It was like a continuous struggle. Um, And so when I hear fake it till you make it, a lot of people who experience imposter syndrome, I don't know if we ever really make it. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if we ever really fully make it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, we'll work hard and do what we have to do. But I don't know that we can ever tell ourselves, like, we, we, made, we made it. I made you know it. what I mean? Like, even mm-hmm. with my YouTube channel, I still don't consider, I'm like, yeah, I did it. But, you know, mm-hmm. and like, Brock, you're pretty established and you have your podcast. Do you consider, like, you've made it? You are... A, a reputable, like recognized <laughs> like you're an amazing resource and Sarah and Michelle. So it's like, I don't know that we ever fully feel like we made it, but we do our best to try to make it. 
Maybe that's part Uh of the problem that we always feel like we have to be at this high, like we're always trying to make it when really part of the journey of learning as a therapist is what it is. Yeah. 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 I think it's like that comparison too, that you're always looking to other people that have done more or are doing more, or you think are at this higher level level than you are. And so you're always like comparison, like comparison, comparing, I want to be where they're at. And I know, like, I've said this to people in the past, like, especially like, we'll talk about like podcasting for, for instance, right? Like if you listen to a podcast and you're like, I want to start a podcast. And I listen to this podcast that's been around for 10 years and they're amazing. And you want to sound like that. It's not like you can't compare somebody's middle or end or towards the end to your beginning. But when you're in, when you're in the trenches and when you're trying to figure it out, you're listening to the people that have been doing it a whole lot longer, or at least have a little bit more experience of it, of it happening. So, and you can relate that to anything. So if you're a student and you are going out into practice and going onto your field work and you're looking up to your supervisors, you're looking up to the other therapists that are around that have been doing it longer than you have. And so you just sit there and you're like, man, I wish I could be as smooth into my transitions. And I wish I could think as fast, like on the fly to be able to do all those treatments and everything. And so it's this constant comparison that I know for me, like that, I I think that's what ultimately gets me. And I always try to not, not compare, but again, it's like trying to put yourself out there and challenge. You're always going to be looking at people that are doing it, like that have been doing it before you have. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because another behavioral pattern, so there's, there's four. So we talked about procrastination, fear of success, um, kind of ties into that diligence and hard work. And then holding back is another one. And so for some people who experience imposter syndrome, they might not necessarily speak up all the time because they don't feel like they have the right answers or the right things to say or provide or don't know enough about it. Or, you know, they may not go for those leadership roles or supervisory manager roles or anything like that because they don't feel adequate enough to hold those positions. And so they kind of fall back a little bit. Um, I know for me, a huge thing was I didn't like to speak uh, in class, but once I found out about imposter syndrome, I was like, I'm going to try speaking up in class more. And, and I did. And a lot of times I got the answers right. But before then I was so terrified of like making a fool out of myself and talking in class and speaking and answering questions because I was like, I'm going to get the wrong answer. Um, even though I may say it in my head and be like, Oh, I should have said it, you know, after the fact, cause I'm like, Oh, I was right. I should have said it. So it's just interesting how this whole phenomenon just kind of plays on our, our mental, you know, and it, it can really be, um, I don't want to say debilitating, but for lack of a better word, it can really kind of be crippling for, for some people. I love, um, I love that so- you went from the, the woman who's afraid to talk in class to starting your YouTube channel. I'm like, one-on-one is fine, you know, interviewing someone. And then, you know, I'm just talking to the camera, so that's okay. (laughs) Like, if I'm going to beat this thing, I'm going all out. (laughs) I mean, but really, I've I've had to 
work through this. And I think really just kind of understanding what this is has helped me a lot because before this, it, there's no way, there's no way I would have started. A, there's no way I would have started a YouTube channel. It just wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have presented at conference. Like, no. And even when I presented at conference, I still felt like I didn't know enough to talk about it and be presenting at conference. I'm like, educators are here. What do I have to say about this? Um, but yeah, I've been working on it. I've been working on it, Brock. <laughs> and that's what, that's what, yeah. And that's kind of what it takes to kind of overcome, overcome this, you know? Um, and really, I think, you know, one of the things that we talked about when we did our presentation was what are some ways that educators and faculty can help support students and how can students ask for support or find resources to, you know, navigate their imposter syndrome. And so um, I think it really helps to have people that understand what it is and be able to provide guidance and be like, it's not all in your head. You're here because you deserve to be here and just kind of provide them guidance that the guidance that they need. Yeah. I see a lot of links between what you're saying with regards to imposter syndrome and a variety of theories related to motivation, um, especially when we're looking at motivation to change uh, anything, behaviors, that kind of thing, because there's a lot of those sort of theories talk about uh, having to overcome and the uncomfortableness change is uncomfortable it sucks doesn't matter what it is small big you know moving house or separating from a partner or you know your favorite lunch shop is closed today like any change is comes with it with some sort of inherent uncomfortableness that we need to be able to overcome in order to make that change but also uh we need to be resilient enough to be able to sit with that uncomfortableness because if we're not, then we don't make the change. We're not able to make the change. If we, everything, all the ducks align, but we're just not able to sit with that uncomfortable feeling long enough to make the change, it doesn't happen. And I kind of, when, when you're sort of describing all of these different functions or all of these different aspects of imposter syndrome, I'm, my brain's automatically making the link between those two in that, Imposter syndrome seems to be, with regards to academic uh, capacity, it's that uncomfortable feeling. It's that uncomfortableness of change. And we either need to work out a way of, because it doesn't last forever. It's kind of like a craving. It lasts for, you know, a little bit and it goes away and it might come back again later. It's not a, or for me anyway, it's not a consistent, you know, forever kind of feeling. So you either need to work out a way to overcome that or have the resilience to sit with it because, again, it's an, it's an uncomfortable feeling. It's not going to kill you. It's not terminal. It's just a feeling. It's an emotion. It's telling you something. Um, so I wonder whether there's been any thoughts or research about even just the resilience of sitting with that feeling. I guess kind of a mindfulness thing, sitting with it, acknowledging it that it exists. Um, and whether or not that has any impact on how it makes you feel kind of thing, if that makes sense. Yep. I think that the, the main thing 
that has to happen first is that people have to recognize what it is that they're experiencing. So without recognition of what it is that they're experiencing, you know, they're just internalizing it as it's just me. You know, it's just, this is what I do. I get into my head. I'm not, you know, I don't belong here. I'm not good enough. They're all that. Um, But I think once we give that a name and we understand what that represents, then I think that's when we can make that connection of how do we now process this from being just in my head and processing it in a healthy way that allows me to cope and re-strategize how I'm going to approach these symptoms that come up that arise. Um, and that, and that can be a process for, for some. Um, and some people might be better than, than others as far as like, kind of like get out of my head, you know, and other people, it's a little more, more of a struggle, especially if you're in school and schools four years or however long you're dealing with this for a while, you know? So I think education on this topic and then talk around it and, and finding supports for uh, people that are experiencing it. Uh, for me, it, mindfulness has been pretty helpful. Um, it still creeps up every now and then. Uh, but like I said, I'm able to put a name to it and kind of just, okay, that's what's happening. Like, this does not define you. You are smart, even though I don't fully believe it <laughs> at times. Like, you know, like, it's fine. It's fine. And it, it is. It's usually fine. Um, but man, um, there have been studies to show that, you know, imposter syndrome can lead to heightened anxiety and stress and depression. And so there is that mental health component to it that can be really, you know, crippling. Um, so unless you have the resources to help navigate that, you know, you're just kind of stuck with it. Um, but there are ways, there are ways for sure. It'd be good to see more research on how to mitigate the experience of imposter syndrome. Yeah. I think one of the big things that I've been trying to do, especially when I get in kind of this like negative spiral of imposter syndrome and anxiety and not sleeping and (laughs) whatever else happens is really just trying to reframe my mindset around it. Cause I think so often people that are experiencing imposter syndrome, we are thinking about success and failure. And a lot of times we get so stuck on I have to, I have to make my goal because I have to be successful. Otherwise I'm a failure. And like, especially like, think about if you're a student in school and you have to take a test, you get a test back, you get a high grade, then you can say, oh, I'm successful on that. You get a low grade, you know, that, that you failed in it and you get that like immediate kind of external feedback to what's going on in that situation. But then you get out into practice and you're doing something you might not get that external feedback that you are seeking out that success or that failure. You're, you're kind of sitting with your own emotions about it. And I know for me, I've been really trying to redefine what is success and what is failing at something, because even if you don't get the results that you specifically are looking for, that doesn't mean that you failed. You can be, you can find success in other ways. And I think shifting that mindset and having a little bit different understanding of what it is that you 
that will help you feel like you succeed, even if it's small, even if it's the smallest thing possible. But just because you didn't get everything that you wanted doesn't mean that you're going to fail. It's you can still succeed, even if you're not getting that external feedback, that external motivation that is that you're kind of striving for. Yeah, and it, and it, and that can be challenging. It's almost like a double whammy for some people who experience imposter syndrome because even let's say they, you know, they take a test, they get an A, they see they got an A and they can breathe for a minute, but they still have to now worry about the next test or the next project or the next paper. And so it's like this never ending cycle. So it's like, okay, success. All right. On to the next, you know? So it's, yeah, just like that, you know? So it's, it's tricky. It's annoying. It's so annoying. (laughs) Sir, it's interesting. You said that because I remember, um, when I started working professionally as an OT, I had the same exact experience that, um, with not getting as much feedback and not having grades, I suddenly started to revert to, um, am I doing a good job? Um, and Alondra, maybe you can speak to this, but I feel like some of this is also like some of those just like beliefs that we have about ourselves. And I feel like I've listened to podcasts about like our inner child and there's all these, these theories of like why we feel that way. Um, and some theories on like unhealed, um, I don't know if I want to use the word trauma, but like things in our past that made us form these beliefs about ourselves. And I think that's something that I've had to confront that a lot of when I wasn't getting feedback, my internal feedback was, well, what you're doing isn't enough. But if somebody tells me that it's enough, it's okay. And so I'm constantly looking for that. But that also, in some ways, will never satiate that need. You'll, um, I've had to realize that I'll never feel better about myself if I'm always looking for somebody else to tell me and grade me and give me an A. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that because there have been, there has been work out there that, you know, talks about how some people that experienced this kind of had this, you know, in their childhood where they were, you know, the golden child, you know, they were the example, you know, why can't you be more like your sister Alondra? I got that a lot growing up. Like Alondra gets good grades. Why can't you guys be like Alondra? And I'm like, stop putting the pressure on me. Um, and so, you know, that kind of just having that as a child kind of created this, like, okay, now I have to step up and really show, you know, what it is that other people are seeing in me that I may not necessarily see in myself, especially my family and my parents. And so this, I mean, even goes into like, first generation and different cultures and how, you know, in in certain cultures you have to do good in school or else like it's all about the education. I need an A. And so you find that, you know, people that were raised with that background also experience imposter syndrome because it's this constant battle of not being good enough or having to do good, but still have to worry about the next thing that they have to be good at. And it's this constant it's just this constant battle. Um, yeah. Just on that, does it, obviously the, we, we spoke about, you know, people being able to identify it, but what is it that they're actually identifying? Does it manifest sort of physically the same in 
everyone or like are they a common thing? So I like for me, I don't know how I'd describe it. Like I can feel it. It's kind of like stress, but so when I feel stressed, it's in my head. Whereas this, I can't, it's almost like a nausea. I feel it's like stress, but in my gut almost. And it feels like you can feel it like a wave. You can feel it kind of building and building as whatever deadline or whatever I'm doing gets closer and closer. And then once it hits a certain level is when I start to get that sort of negative self-talk and that kind of thing. Does it manifest like for you you guys? Does it manifest to you guys similar to that, or is it completely different? How does it? How do you? What do you actually experience when you when you do feel it? Oh, your mic is. I was unmuted. (laughs) Sorry. Um, uh, I. It's funny. I was actually just telling somebody this um, earlier today, but um, I've been on quite a few silent retreats, and they're exactly how they sound. That people are silent, and you're meditating, and things like that. And it was fascinating to me the internal stories that would show up when nobody else is talking. That it was so quiet that my internal dialogue was what was showing up, and I had this realization that. Um, I could be, you know, in a room full of people and I'd have thoughts about, oh, that person thinks this about me or, oh, they don't, that person didn't want to sit by me at the lunch table. Or, you know, like I had all of these thoughts popping in my head and it wasn't until like it's complete silence and I don't know a soul here that I really had this realization of like, those are actually not real. Um, but I think it took me. And so those same thoughts carried over professionally and in school of like, you're, you're not doing good enough. Um you're not likable enough, whatever it was that for me, it took almost like a a silent retreat to dampen out everybody else's voice to realize that some of it was my own, um, internal dialogue. So I think for me, my, um, clues of imposter syndrome are, um, the internal dialogue, like noticing my thoughts, like, Oh, there's a thought you're not good enough. Or, um, I, th- I think like you were saying, Brock, I also do get like the physical symptoms. I get a lot of like the racing heart, the the pit in my stomach as well. But anytime I feel like I'm having to like really prove myself or trying to get somebody's approval, that's probably my biggest clue. Yeah, I, w- I would say for me, especially in grad school, um, I don't know that many people that probably didn't have some form of anxiety, <laughs> just like trying to get through grad school. Um, But for me, it was like very heightened anxiety attacks and panic attacks and um, not feeling like I could tell anyone else because everyone would tell me like, you're so smart, Alondra. And I'm just like, oh gosh, you have no idea. I don't know anything (laughs) compared to you guys, you know, and it's just this constant battle. Um, I mean, to the point where you know, at, at, in our program, in our school, we had um, an on-site counselor. And so I would go and I would talk to her and, and she's like, okay, but uh, what are your grades like? How are you doing in the classes? Are you failing? And I'm like, no, they're good. I'm doing good. And she's like, okay, so what is that telling you? And I'm like, I, I'm doing something. I'm doing good. And she's like, all right. So as long as you're able to take a step back and see what you've done, see your progress, you know, knowing that you're doing something. And I'm like, okay, I kind of get what you're saying. Um, but man, 
that that anxiety and panic would really it really would set in a, a lot during grad school not so much now because i'm learning how to work around that but who we trouble trouble concentrating studying oh man it's hard i think uh, yeah, I totally resonate with everything that you guys have said about like the anxiety and it's almost like this like deep feeling in your body. But when when I can identify it, that it's happening or like has happened, like I'm in it, I get this feeling that I want to go run and hide. I do not want to see anybody. I don't want to face the world like not even like my husband. Like I just, I, I don't want to be around anybody. I just want to get out and I don't want to have any contact. And all of a sudden I'm like, what, what is that? Like I've, I've started to try to sit there and be like, what is that feeling? And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is Mr. Imposter. He's coming in and he's taking over right now. Cause Ooh. I put myself out there and now I'm like, I'm done. I don't want to be out there. And I like find myself trying to like reel that all back in. And I'm like, I know I can't do that, but yeah, that's like, for me, that's the big thing. I know when I want to go crawl into a little cave under a rock, imposter syndrome has hit hardcore. Yeah. And, and, um, I feel like, uh, in speaking to, to like the diversity piece and, um, the diversity within our profession and in our students, um, you know, uh, people of color in our profession are not always represented. And so, um, what we find is that when we get to OT school to graduate programs, we have even less representation. And sometimes we're like, the only one or one of two. And so we really have to prove, we, we get this sense and feeling that we really have to show that we belong here. We are, you know, we earn this space. And so we're constantly struggling and trying to battle and prove ourselves. And so um, it's not uncommon to see it a lot in people of color, um, especially in programs that don't necessarily reflect them as well. So, um, that's another piece that, you know, it's just, it's just interesting how it manifests. It's not, when you think about it, it's not surprising, but it's still interesting how it manifests itself in people. How do we fix it? What's the magic bullet? How can people get rid of it? Re I don't know if you can get totally get rid of it. You know, <laughs> we will always have those times where we're question like, but we will just question ourselves and be like, man, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> and somebody is going to see that. So <laughs> I think I need to run and hide like Sarah. <laughs> um, but really, I think just educating yourself on what it is. Um, I, I have this, okay, I'm using my, the book as a prop for my computer right now, but I, I have this book that I absolutely love when, um, Rose Clance and Susan Iles first did this study, it was specifically geared towards women and the women that they, uh, did the research on were high achieving women, women in, you know, uh, lawyers and doctors and uh even ot was represented in their in their research so these were like high achieving women um and there's still there's not enough study to suggest it's more women than men um it just seems to be a common thread but really men aren't exempt to this like it's 
it's not, it's not like that. But one of the books that I absolutely love, and it's not just for women, even though it says it, is The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women by Dr. Valerie Young. And I've got all my tabs. <laughs> I love this book. But I mean, as I was reading this book, when I, when I first got it, I was like, how does she, like, how does she know me? Like, who? How, who told her all of these things about me? Like, and I just like, I'm keep flipping the page and I'm like, who told her? Like, oh my gosh. And just, you know, if someone created a book about it, you know, you're not alone, you know, and that really helps, you know, um, in processing this. So I think the more we kind of educate ourselves on, you know, you're not alone. There are other people who experience this, people in in high positions. I'm talking about, you know, presidents and, you know, people in these amazing leadership positions and they experience it too. So it's like, it's a range. And so as long as we recognize it and read a little bit about it and do some research, and I think we we personally, each individual has to kind of do their own work with it as well. Um, I think that's how we start to kind of break that barrier and putting a name to it. I really feel, I mean, for me personally, I felt like putting a name to it really has helped me a lot, you know, cause I'm like, okay, it's, it's, I'm thinking these things, but I know it's the imposter syndrome and that has really helped tremendously, um, for me because I'm starting to come to the realization that I do have skills. I am resourceful and I can get things done. Mm-hmm. I just need to work through that and get over it. Like this isn't a reflection of me. It's my imposter syndrome. <laughs> I think that externalization of anything, pretty much anything to do with your internal monologue, your internal self-talk, your anything that you think or say about yourself being able to externalize it is super powerful because then it doesn't it's not a part of you it's just something that else that's happening same as you know breathing eating everything else it's just another process it's not i I think it takes it out of that identity realm and puts it over here as a separate thing so it's no longer something that this is part of, like, this is you, you know, you are not good enough, you are not blah, 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 but it's, you know, this thing says that I'm not good enough, but, you know, it's over here now. And I think just creating that space between uh, can help you process that and actually see it for what it is, see it for that, as opposed to when you're really close up against it, it's hard to see anything other than the imposter syndrome at the time, especially when you first start experiencing it, um, you know, quite severely it's hard to see the forest through the trees yeah it is it's it is it's a nasty little beast (laughs) (laughs) the the imposter syndrome monster it's coming to get me and i'm like get away (laughs) um one thing that i found interesting in like doing all the research was that there was this one study um by Ferrari. I remember because it's a car. Ferrari. <laughs> um, I think it was like in 2015 or something like that. And um, he did a study with students who identify, um, you know, he gave them kind of this imposter syndrome scale, see where they're at. And then he did 
um, kind of like this questionnaire where he was, you know, asking uh, if you had answers or something like that, would you cheat? And just basically kind of talking about like academic honesty and dishonesty and plagiar, you know, all of that, all that integrity and all that. And so what he found in his study was that the people who had lower symptoms or didn't identify with having imposter syndrome, you know, symptoms uh, were actually more likely to report dishonesty, like admit to cheating and being a little bit more dishonest in, in their work and what they're doing compared to people who have had higher symptoms of imposter syndrome. They would, you know, cheating, it's not happening, academic dishonesty, not happening. And that's because that whole work harder piece have to show and prove. And it was just, it was an interesting study. I'm like, yes, it's true. There's something positive about having this. I'm not a cheater. Like, <laughs> and, and I, you know, because you're, you struggle with imposter syndrome, the last thing you want to do is get caught cheating. You know, mm-hmm. you already don't feel like you belong. You don't want to do something to jeopardize that for real, for real. So um, it was just an interesting study. And I'm like, oh, okay, something positive out of all of this. <laughs> I think there's definitely got to be some positives though, right? Like, do you think, I mean, yeah. there's obvious, but I think the hardworking or just like diligent, I mean, I think there's definitely a lot of great qualities about it too. Yeah. Um, and then yeah. the, the not, not a tendency to cheat. <laughs> yeah. It's just kind of like over the top diligence and stuff, yes, but it's, in when a, it's in too a, much. It, it, it just kind of goes to show that, you know, we're hard, hard workers, you know, mm-hmm. and we're trying to, you know, make it, mm-hmm. <laughs> even though we never feel like we make it, we're just trying, we're trying to really make it. And that's why we work so hard. And so um, in a way, it's kind of like, all right, you have imposter syndrome. That's great. I know you're going to do your work. Yes. <laughs> like I'm <laughs> on my team. Um, but yeah, it's, something good has to come out of that. Right. Yeah. So Alondra, we always like to finish with asking our guests to come up with a little challenge for our listeners out there. So since we've been talking about imposter syndrome and kind of getting past it and what to do about it, do you have any thoughts on a little kind of challenge that we could ask people to partake in maybe to go do something that they have been thinking about that they want to do. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think for anyone who thinks that they might be experiencing this, the first thing I would ask you to do or challenge you to do is take the, uh, uh, the imposters. Uh, oh my gosh. I want to make sure I get the re- the name right. That the Clance imposter phenomenon scale. And that's, and I'll give you guys the website um, and the link, I mean, and take that, see what your results are, and then go from there. It's really eye-opening for for people who feel like, you know, I don't really, they might find that they're kind of in the middle somewhere. And for people that are like, you know, I I think I have this, but I'm not sure, they're probably going to be on the far end. So um, I think that'll be a, a good challenge to kind of See where you're at on the scale. And then, man, I'd be curious to know what, what people kind of got on the scale. What would, what were the range? What were the range? That'll be pretty interesting. Post it. I love that. Yeah. What was that Brock? Post it and tag us so we can have a look. 
Yeah. Do we have to share our score, like our number? Is that, or will we have a vulnerability hangover? (laughs) It has like a range, Uh, you know, each each number falls within a range. And so it'll say like something like, uh, oh, moderate experience, frequently have experience of imposter phenomenon, intense experiences of imposter phenomenon. So you don't have to put your score, but you're Mm going to fall in one of those categories. So you can say which category you fall in. I'd be interested to hear if like, you know, if you score moderate, and you think that's accurate, like you feel like, yeah, okay, I can relate to that. Like it does feel moderate or, you know, I feel like that's a bit less than I actually feel it or that's more than I thought I was going to score. I'd be interested to see uh, what people feel about their scores more than the scores themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people will probably be not as shocked Mm -hmm. about the scores. Yeah. I was on the, Pretty high end. Mm-hmm. I was, I can tell you now, I was intense. <laughs> if I took the, I score, the vulnerability, if, I was like, oh, <laughs> but I can tell you, like, if I took it now, I would probably be, you know, on the lower end. The low, the lowest is like less than 40, and then it goes to moderate, frequently, um, and intense experience. So probably between moderate and the lowest. I would say I'm probably at right now, but man, it was, <laughs> it was up there. <laughs> I love it, this it, challenge. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, I love that challenge, Alondra, because um, you said like finding supports is so important. And like you even saying that, I think for listeners, we'll give them some comfort. Like there are other people out there that score in the intense range. Like where are my, you know, other intense people at? Or um, yeah, <laughs> I think that'll be huge. Yeah. You're not close. Seriously. So yeah, you'll, you'll, and I think that's probably what will be shocking. If anything is when we start getting results of this, if people take the, the, the assessment or the, the scale, uh, that they'll find that more people are in a similar range as themselves than Mm -hmm. less. Mm -hmm. And I think that'll be kind of eye opening. and maybe even people that they know who they're like, Oh, they're good, man. They're smart. They got this. And to see them in a, in a higher range, you know, that might be shocking if anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) It's the one time. I'm so curious now. I'm going to have imposter syndrome about whether or not I have imposter syndrome. very meta. There's no right or wrong score, Brock. You're not alone. <laughs> Just know you're, you're not alone. Just know you're not alone. Either way. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, you're not. Yeah. You'll be fine. Yeah. And, and there is some comfort in knowing that, you know, you're not alone. So mm-hmm. um, I, I feel like that really kind of helps to lower your your guard down a little bit and be like, whew, okay, now what? <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? So it, 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 it'll just create some interesting dialogue too, I think, that'll just mm-hmm. arise organically from, from that. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm curious. Take Continue the conversation. <laughs> yeah, take it. Take it. Well, so. thank you so much for joining us, coming on the show today, Alondra, and really just sharing about this because I agree. I think we need to have continued conversation and we need to talk about this more because clearly all four of us here have experienced it in one way or another. And I'm sure there are so many other people that 
are experiencing it, have experienced it, will experience it, or some combination of all of that. And I know you had mentioned that you have a YouTube channel. So where? Yeah, they can find me at, uh, yeah, Alondra La OT on YouTube and um, you can follow me on Facebook. I have Alondra La OT Facebook page and Instagram. And if I'm not doing something on YouTube, I'm usually doing something on my other social media platforms. So yeah, find me there. Mm -hmm. I always welcome any, you know, anyone that has questions, people reach out to me all the time and, and I love it. I love being able to help and be a resource and I don't mind it at all. I think that's an OT thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're just like you want help oh you want help okay what do we need to do you know like it's <laughs> just an OT thing I think <laughs> but I love it when yeah. people reach out and you know send direct messages and all that I'm, I'm totally fine with that so yeah awesome love it all right Brock what about you where can people connect with you uh people can find me at occupiedpodcast.com occupiedpodcast on Instagram Occupied Podcast on Facebook. I'm pretty sure it's the same everywhere. Just Google Occupied Podcast and you should find everything that you need if you if you don't already know. Michelle? Um, you can find me on Instagram, Michelle's Mindful Moments. And uh, my website is uh, incorporatemindfulness.com. Um, Alondra, I just also wanted to say thank you so much and that I really appreciated this conversation. And I feel like um, even for all of us, I feel like this is the most probably like vulnerable in a way we've been like saying these things about us that we all feel. And so I just want to say thank you for creating that space. And I think it's going to be really helpful for other people too. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. I'm so happy you yeah. guys invited me to do this. And it's, it's a very personal, you know, topic and journey and <laughs> struggle and overcoming. And so anytime I can talk about it, I'm like, Yes, because I know there's so many people that experience this and I just want you guys to know like you're not alone. Um, and so I, I love being able to, and it's the one, it's probably one of the few times that I will let my guard down and be more vulnerable because it is so personal. So thank you guys. I appreciate it. All right. And yeah, you guys, you can find me at otforlife.com. And if you want to connect with the OT Roundtable, the otroundtable.com. Thanks again. This was awesome. Thank you, Alondra. Yes, you're welcome. <laughs>